Welcome to another episode of the Augmented Podcast. Augmented reveals the stories behind a new era of industrial operations, where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In episode 85 of the podcast, the topic is industrial cloud interoperability, and our guest is Leon Cooperman, CTO of Cast AI. In this conversation, we talk about cloud interoperability, whether it exists, why it's needed, and what it would accomplish. We get into the technical underpinnings such as Kubernetes and containerization and the outlook for public, private and hybrid clouds and the vendors that supply such advanced infrastructures. Augmented is a podcast for industrial leaders, engineers and for shop floor operators hosted by futurist Trun Arne Unheim and presented by Tulip. Leon, how are you? Hey Trun, nice to be with you. Nice to speak to you. So listen, we are going to have some uh, interesting conversations about pretty hefty topics. So, so let's kick it off a little bit on the personal end. You've got a computer science degree from York University, and then you got yourself into some interesting stuff. I see you have a brown belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Tell me how you got into that. Uh, it's funny. It's probably more closely tied to my computer science geekiness than you would assume. So I was always picked on as a kid. I was a scrawny little 120-pound teenager, and I guess bullies thought it was was easy pickings. And so I joined the wrestling team in high school. That kind of gave me the confidence to stop the bullying. And then after high school, I helped coach wrestling, and it became a big part of my life, grappling in general. And then I found Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu right around the time when the UFC was coming up, and the Gracie families made their debut in UFC 1. And I was fortunate enough to be in Los Angeles, which is the mecca of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. What I've noticed since then is a lot of techies practice the sport because it's a lot like chess with a physical element. So when I was in Seattle, for example, at Oracle, I found that a lot of folks from AWS and from Microsoft and Oracle and Google kind of get together in the evenings and they roll. And then Position doesn't matter. Company doesn't matter. It's just a like tight group. Oh, that's group that's funny. Have you have you been watching Cobra Kai at all? I've, the Netflix uh, series. My nine year old loves it. She can't get enough. So we yeah she she watches it and I watch it with her and it's so much fun because of the Karate Kid. It's it has that uh, same effect on on me too. It's just an interesting way. But I, I guess I thought of it because uh, you know it's uh, there's this whole philosophy uh, crash there between the various schools of thought. But a lot of it has to do with gaining self confidence. Yeah, and you know what's interesting about that show is like I don't live in Los Angeles anymore, but I used to. So like every time Cobra Kai goes through like the areas that they're in and seeing those, like I, this, it's, all, it's like a double layer of nostalgia for me because I recognize all of the parts where they film. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, anyway, let's uh, go beyond Cobra Kai for a minute. You obviously became a, a CTO t- uh, type, or I mean, you know, you've been uh, working in the sort of on, on the technical side for a long time. Uh, you, you were at Oracle for a good while as well on sort of cloud infrastructure, and now you, uh, I understand, you lead a infrastructure as a service company. Can you just let's start there, maybe? Infrastructure as a service. What 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 is that in terms of a business model? What does that mean for you? Yeah, so it really started in 2006, I think, when AWS or Amazon released Amazon Web Services, and they started with a few simple services, S3 for storage and EC2 for computers. It's a very simple concept. You don't need a data center. You don't need routers and switches, and and you don't need to rack and stack your own stuff. You can just go and rent computers. But 
unlike previous hosting models, they provided an API, a control plane that said, hey, you can do this all programmatically. So you don't need to talk to human beings. You need to fill out orders. Just call this API and we'll give you a computer. We'll give you storage and away you go. And that's pure infrastructure as a service with an on-demand billing model. Um, and that's what we're aiming to optimize for our customers. Look, cloud is, you know, or, well, I guess it has been all the rage for a long time. It's actually, I guess, a little bit surprising that we have this topic still because so much of cloud has to do with speaking together across sort of data boundaries, meaning, you know, you obviously, in order to just upload data to someone's cloud, you, you obviously have to put it into a format that works for that other provider. But let's dig into this this whole area of cloud interoperability. First of all, let me ask you a very basic question. Does this cloud interoperability even exist right now? It does. It does right now. And not necessarily because of a set of pre-thought out standards that have emerged, but because of commercial opportunity and through kind of a capitalist process, there has been a need for businesses to have multiple presences in different clouds. And they have to communicate together. And so the very simplest interoperability is like kind of the backbone of the internet, HTTP, HTTPS, and RESTful APIs. And that's not something that necessarily was a long drawn out standard that was a collaboration with a lot of big companies. It happened quite organically, which is why I believe it has taken hold and is the main kind of driver for API interoperability. So to, you know, at a very basic level, interoperability, is that something that, uh, you know, in your field, have you seen it mostly emerge fairly naturally between, I guess, the, the big players, for example, Microsoft and Oracle collaboration, or, or you know, or is it largely driven by, uh, you know, more like government mandates, or, or is it kind of a mix? So it's kind of a mix, and I would say the most successful interoperability projects have been accidental and opportunistic. And let me give you an example, right? So Amazon was the first kind of company to provide an implemented at hyperscale object storage platform. It's called S3. It has an API, and customers started using it. Now, that's a proprietary API. That There's nothing standard about that S3 API. It was it, it, from anything from the authentication stack to the actual data plane is all proprietary. But it's expensive. The S3 is expensive. And there became an opportunity for others in the industry to step in and make that service more accessible and less expensive to companies. And so what did they do? They copied the API. So you have companies like Backblaze.io and Wasabi, and now Cloudflare has stepped in with a completely S3 compatible API. And now that's just become the industry standard. So Amazon no longer owns it. I mean, they don't have ownership of a specification. And everyone just writes that API. Now, as a user of object storage, I have plenty of choices, and I'm not locked into Amazon just because I've used that API. Well, look, uh, it's a myriad of different organizations that get involved in standardization as as you know i wanted to see if you could maybe lay it out for us and we you know i can sort of uh, shepherd along with some of the ones that i can remember but if you think about cloud standardization which really is quite important if we believe that cloud is going to you know is this important technology what would you say are the uh, the four where this is really happening so I, I can just list off a few that that i'm fairly you know fairly aware of so dmtf is one organization, you know, IEEE, obviously a massive standards organization. These are, they have mixed origin, right? These two organizations. And then obviously Oasis does some work and OGF is another standards body. 
Uh, SNEA is more on the data management side. And there's, I, I'm sure there, you know, you started out with uh, some web standards and, you know, W3C is a, you know, very famous standards organization there. But then there's also national bodies and international standards like ISO and stuff. And, you know, they famously have standardized a, a lot of, of, of standards, which were actually big, big kind of industry battles. And then they went into ISO standardization as some sort of like middle ground, I guess. What are the four that you spend the most time in or that you think, you know, are developing standards that are really helping the cause right now for the industry? Yes. Like I'm obviously very uh, focused on an area of cloud computing called cloud native, right? So cloud native is kind of the area of taking containerized applications and allowing them to can you explain that first? I meant to actually get there as well, but can you explain some of the technical side maybe before we get to the standards? Because you mentioned containerization, and that brings us to uh, Kubernetes and, and and a bunch of different things that I, I think we need to establish that base level understanding first. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when we started Cast, which is the current business, Cast AI, we made kind of three fundamental bets. And those bets are kind of important to understand the technical stack. We said that all kind of applications as a deployment model are going to move away from being installed on virtual machines, so on hypervisors with virtual machines, to this containerization technology. Uh, what a container is, it's a skinny down operating system without drivers, without hardware support. It has a very basic file system, very a basic network stack, and it has very few OS packages, just enough to make that application's requirements run. And you as a DevOps person or an engineer can specify what you want in that stack. So you can say, I need this version of Linux with these dependencies installed. And then my application goes into that, what's called a container image. Right? And Docker is the famous kind of desktop platform that allows engineers to work and orchestrate these images. So we made a bet that, look, I, we think that 95% of applications, maybe it's a little less, maybe it's within five to seven years, are all going to be containerized as a standard practice, right? And if that's true, then who's going to orchestrate these containers at runtime? So when you have a container that starts up, you have to manage it. You have to manage its lifecycle, right? Very much like a computer. And so there was a bunch of competing you know, open source projects several years ago. And the clear winner of that kind of race is Kubernetes. Kubernetes, at its origin, was an internal project at Google. It was called Borg, I believe. And Borg turned into when it was renamed Kubernetes and it was open sourced. And basically it's a mechanism of taking tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of these little containers and orchestrating them on, on virtual or physical hardware to make sure that they run together, they're scheduled properly, and their life cycles are managed. No, this makes a lot of sense. I, I think you also probably need to uh, give your little spiel on open source versus standardization because you know, you said it was an. Uh, you know, there are various competing or various open source projects that matter to this. But for some people, open source does mean that they that these interfaces are standardized because they they're theoretically open. But that's actually not really the case, is it? You, you know, you actually have to actively standardize something. Yeah, it's not the case at all. And I find that the projects that start in the open source arena find value to their consumers, find value to the customers that are using those projects, have then contribution from those consumers, meaning it's a full life cycle. So open source works because developers get together and say, all right, for mutual benefit, we're going to contribute code to this project. 
we like your basic premise. We are going to sign up as a contributor and we're going to donate our time and energy and effort to make this a better project. So Linux is the, the ultimate kind of famous open source example. Now, did it lead to standardization of many things? Absolutely. But it started as an open source project to break the monopolistic kind of operating system that was Windows back in the day. So yes, there's a big difference. I believe that all of the values first created in an open source project, when it gains traction in a market, whether that's an open source market or even used in a commercial market, it then lends itself to standardization. And then there are many examples where we can kind of go over that kind of express that. We can even use some Older examples like SQL is a great, I think it's an IEEE standard. I, like, I have to refresh myself on it, but SQL stands for sequential query language. It's the language of all databases. Didn't start out that way. You know, you had a few players, Oracle, IBM back in the day, and they decided that they were going to make their query language interoperable at the database level. Are there extensions? Sure. But the fundamental syntax is the same across all databases. And that standardization has led to a lot of additional innovation on top of those commercial offerings. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, uh, ISO, uh, I think it was IBM, I guess, at the time that actually introduced their SQL standard into ISO. And that, in, in the end, actually, uh, at the end of the day, actually created the business opportunity for Oracle, right? Because if, if, yeah. if that hadn't happened, there would have been no Oracle, in a sense. Because, you you know, the they were building on, on that standard. So that's an interesting example. So now I think we're back to being able to actually talk about uh, standards in your field. So you, you're saying, you know, in, in, you know, we were talking about Kubernetes and, uh, and container based standards as like your entry point into, into cloud. What are the active sort of standards that, you know, you are using now in this field? And what are some of the emerging uh, discussions about uh, interoperability in, in your field? At all levels of the stack, there are different standards that matter, right? Mm -hmm. So Let's go pretty low in the stack, and then we'll choose a couple of exam examples higher in the stack. At the lowest level, a container has to run in a container runtime, right? So that used to be a commercial company would provide an implementation. Docker was one of those companies. Now we have moved to kind of a, what's called a container D in runtime environment, and that is just a completely open standard environment. So anybody can implement that interface. And I'll find the exact standard in just a second, Tron, but anyone can implement that interface and have a interoperable container runtime. And then folks can implement those with different you know, best practices. So for example, you could have a very security-oriented container runtime. AWS has actually done a really good job in that. They are so concerned about container security. They produced a standards-based container runtime called Firecracker Micro VM that is interoperable with Kubernetes as an example and many other container orchestration platforms. So I think at the lowest level, how your containers run, that being an interoperable piece where you can plug and play different frameworks to run the same image and its layers is very important. At kind of the, the bottom of the stack from a cloud native perspective. And at the top of the stack, we have application level standards. So one interesting standard that's emerging right now is a standard called cloud events. So what is an event? Every system emits some type of event, right? And so when you have to transmit data between two systems, really there's two options. There's a pull option and there's a push option, right? So pulling is kind of 
clunky because it involves a client to pull for information. So every five seconds I wake up and say, hey, do you have anything more for me? Give me this stuff, right? And then there's a push option. And that push option in the last five, seven years has become extremely popular. So with the advent of uh, open source projects like Kafka, uh, RabbitMQ, every modern application stack now has a push model where you can write events to an event broker and then subscribe to those events somewhere else and read those events. The problem is, is there's no standard for the meat of the event. What is inside of the event? So if I write my events in JSON, but I have some funky schema, how are you going to easily understand that schema? So what the cloud events standard tries to do for, I believe it's from Cloud Native Foundation, CNF, is it tries to say, okay, guys, we're going to interoperate these events, regardless of your implementation, whether it's Kafka, Rabbit, or anything else, when you push events across cloud boundaries, let's do it in this kind of cloud event format. And Microsoft and Oracle have been pretty active in publishing this standard. And I think it's gaining some traction because there's a real need for schema normalization of these types of documents in exchange. So cloud events, right? So that's, you said, is is, is one uh, pretty active uh, track right now. If you think about your industry and the way that that, that it sort of has moved towards standardization, do you, do you see some good reason why vendors would wait a little bit if they have the choice or they perceive they have the choice to kind of push on with uh, some of their proprietary, you know, journeys a little bit before they standardize? Or do you, do you think that overall in cloud, the industry, basically, you you have to compete on other things than, you know, these sort of proprietary interfaces, because otherwise you don't actually capture enough partners and users, you know, of your technology. There, there seems to be this battle in any case, right, in, in computer programs, basically, where you, you obviously want to capture some amount of proprietary traction for your own whether it is an ecosystem or a product, and some of it would then lock in others to follow it. But then very quickly, uh, the benefit of opening up also is very apparent because otherwise maybe a competing ecosystem starts to emerge that gets more users and then you're, you're, you know, you're, you're dead in the water. Tell us a little bit about how that logic works in, in various areas in cloud. Yeah, so when you look at kind of the startup world and you look at technology giants in general, whether they're explicitly saying it or not, they're all vying for monopoly. The golden rule in startup life is to obtain a blue, what's called a blue ocean, if you've ever read the blue ocean strategy, and have no competitors, right? Now, the government says, oh my God, how are you? You have monopolies, like this is terrible. But the truth is, is all companies that say, oh, we don't have a monopoly, this is, you know, we have a monopoly. And all companies that say, oh, we have, first mover monopolistic advantage don't have a monopoly, right? So it's, they're usually pitching the opposite from what they have. But the goal is to get to a monopoly. And if you code to a standard as part of your early business model, you're basically saying, I am giving away the interface that I'm going to code to, right? Like I'm going, I'm gonna implement all of these things in this standard and the next person that comes around can do exactly the same thing with very little barrier to entry. So. From a startup culture perspective, standards aren't great. They don't help build proprietary guerrilla status with customers. Right. They don't necessarily build moat, you know. Exactly right. But the way that startups work around that is they say, look, we're going to do our proprietary journey, right? But we are going to open source our stack and we're going to figure out how to make money 
in other ways. And then that open source argument kind of led to two, a fork in the road. What type of license are we going to open source, right? And are we going to open source a very friendly license? And we should probably explain to readers, like to users, listeners, what the different licenses are. But there's basically two camps of licenses. There's a very open and friendly type of open source license. Some of the examples include MIT license, Apache 2 license. And then there are other licenses that are very closed and what we call copyleft licenses. And a copyleft license basically says you can have our code and you can run it. If you modify it or you're attached to it in any way, you must open source all of those changes. So if, for example, if I extend the Linux kernel, which is a GPL license, it's a copyleft license, I must open source those changes. And that's how they keep Linux open and accessible. It was. It's funny how you call that closed because they themselves call it open, right? Uh, a copyleft is sort of in the community of copyleft. They think that that is the absolutely most open license. But I guess, you know, if you compare it on a spectrum, you have kind of copyleft, then you have these more permissive and what you call open licenses, the Apache and maybe MIT style. And then you have obviously all kinds of blends of proprietary licenses that are the old word would be closed for those licenses. But I mean, I guess you you are using the the, uh, the terms in, uh, somewhat differently because you, you're right. I mean, copyleft isn't very open in terms of the kinds of things you can do. They are predatory in a certain sense because they are viral, which is probably another metaphor that doesn't work very well these days. But anyway, they, they contain and uh, contaminate, I guess, all code. Yeah. Right. So lawyers really don't uh, have a good time with that in large corporations that I know. Yeah. So, for example, when you go to like, if you have, if you're fortunate enough to create a startup that's successful, and it goes into an acquisition, into an M and A, one of the first things that will happen in due diligence is is that your code will get scanned, and it will get scanned for license types, right? And the due diligence checklist will force you to remove things in your code base that have a potential to infect or bleed into the acquiring companies intellectual property. So you're right, from a pure community perspective, it is the, the most purest expression of open source. Hey, if you touch this, bring your stuff back. As an entrepreneur, you really hate those licenses. You really, I am totally fine committing code to Kubernetes, but I want to do that on my terms, right? Not be forced into which parts of my platform I should be open sourced and which parts shouldn't be open sourced. That's kind of my perspective. I mean, this is obviously a very, very interesting territory. And I guess what I find, why it's interesting to discuss this on a podcast today, I think, is that these are not just theoretical discussions, are they? I mean, this is massive amounts of money, massive amounts of code, and which also means this is like, you know, in terms of sort of running things and running manufacturing and, and other important things, this is not just theoretical. I mean, these things will have massive ramifications if you were to like make a big mistake, I guess, in in, in, to, in some people's mind and, and basically try to merge two types of code base and then one actually turn the other one uh, all copyleft. That, would ha that could potentially have massive ramifications. Yeah. In fact, in our CICD pro process, which is continuous integration, continuous delivery, we actually have a commercial piece of software that runs to check all licenses before we promote code to production Every single on every single change. It's that serious of a problem for me. Hmm. So tell me a little bit about what, what it is that you actually do at Cast AI then. So you, you're two years in, uh, you're starting to, you know, to get some clients here, and, and your thesis is very uh, aggressive on containerization 
becoming a much more important principle in the data world. So tell me then a little bit more about how you try to compete, uh, what kinds of things you do for your clients, and and what this container-based business model really really means in practice. Great question. So we work with customers that are adopters of Kubernetes. If, if they're earlier on in what's called their modernization process, so you can roughly define modernization as the move to uh, modular microservices that are packaged in kind of container deployment entities and then pushed into an environment like Kubernetes. There's some competing ones, but Kubernetes is the one we work with. So if a customer uses Kubernetes, we kind of have this basic business thesis. You are over-provisioned on the computers that you use in the cloud, regardless of which cloud you use. And by some statistics, customers are 70% over-provisioned. That leads to massive waste, economic waste from a customer's perspective. And that also leads to massive impact on the environment because you have all these computers running idle that doing nothing that need to be cooled, that need to consume electricity that could be used for other purposes, making the whole compute environment much more green if we were able to make an effective change. So our principle is this. In the first kind of leg of the stool of our product suite, which is resource and cost optimization, we believe customers are vastly over-provisioned and also don't have the DevOps resources to do the changes that they need to do manually. So in our industry, the typical approach from legacy vendors is, hey, we will connect to your environment and we'll give you a list of recommendations of things you should change in practice to bring down the cost. The problem with recommendations is nobody ever takes them. They're a great checkbox for the CFO, but no one ever saves any money on those, right? It, it just gets, why? Because as a DevOps engineer, if I make that change and let's say I squeeze the requirements on my application from 16 CPUs to 12 CPUs, which might be a, a reasonable thing, I'm still on the hook for waking up at night if the application fa falls over, right? So there is this natural sandbagging process that occurs at all levels of the stack. And if you have an SRE team, you best believe there's more sandbagging that's occurring. And so this is uh, uh, overestimates on overestimates. You get to a production clusters with, with tens of thousands of CPUs and maybe only 10% of it's being used, right? But that's where we got to. Hmm. There's a lot of reasons why we got there, which I, I won't get into. But the thesis is, if you don't have enough human beings to take those recommendations, a computer should take over that responsibility of managing the infrastructure that you use in the cloud. So what we do, in, in a nutshell, is we connect to a customer's Kubernetes cluster, and we take over the scaling operations of that cluster. We look at the resources that are required, and we make decisions every 15 seconds. That's our life cycle for decision-making, based on cost and SLA as a first principle. So what requirements do you have? Like what, how much compute and memory do you need to be successful? How much disk compute memory? All the basic principles of, a, of cloud computing. And how much do those things cost? And let us let us put you on a life cycle that lowers your commitments to the clouds, saves you money, and ultimately packs those resources into the smallest possible footprint we can. So Leon, in a really simplified way, a container or a container strategy and a and, and, and a vendor like you essentially helps someone with very large computer needs to optimize the way that they're using cloud storage or any sort of cloud capacity. And you basically almost 
and you said on a 15 second basis, you make these choices about where they should put their resource, where they should buy into and uh, which type of resources they should be you know, using at any given moment. And that is a process that up until now, when you know done manually, I'm assuming like no human being would sit there and make decisions every 15 seconds. That just doesn't make any sense. So you're like, okay, look, uh, this year we went for this service and yeah, they're a little expensive, but that's what I went with. And what this elasticity allows is a completely different way of allocating computer resources. That's what I'm understanding. Exactly right. So think of a container as just a little small computer that runs on much bigger computers, right? It's like it's virtualization but without all of the excess heavyweight drivers and operating system stuff that you don't need when you're running microservices, right? Like when you're running a microservice, there's no need to have a, a video driver unless you need a GPU. Like, but so it's a simplified computer and you can have many, many, like so an average AWS instance can run 110 of these, uh, what are called pods or containers on a computer. So think about one to a hundred ratio. That's two orders of magnitude of scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, just super quickly, you said microservices. That's also not a term that everybody fully understands. Why, why were you saying microservices as opposed to other sort of generic kind of computer services? So a microservice is basically, it's a web service. So uh, think of a RESTful API that only concerns itself with a very small domain. So for example, in a production system, you used to have a monolithic application. And that monolithic application would t- would have ability to take care of authentication, logging, tracing, the application business logic, the database connection pools, and many, many, many other things, right? So it was considered a monolith because it would get published as one big unit. And so the trend of of modernization is to take a monolith and to break it down into multiple discrete services that each are responsible for a simple thing. So you would have something like an authentication service. You would have an audit log service. You might have a billing service that takes care of billing your customers. And each one, the idea here is, yes, they have interoperability requirements. They need to talk to each other, but they act as independent entities, maybe with their own database connections, their own HTTP server, ingress, and so forth. So we're really trying to make it so that a failure of a monolith doesn't happen, where you might have failure in microservices, that's fine, other services continue to run. Imagine if every time AWS had a blip, all of the services of AWS would go down, like (laughs) database, compute, storage, machine learning, you name it. I mean, it would be an unusable cloud because there's failures every day. So by decomposing these useful utilities into smaller pieces, you can have failures that consumers tolerate. So I wanted to bring this down to manufacturing. I know your family business is in manufacturing. Take this all, all of this down to you know what a manufacturer might have to deal with. So in terms of cloud, right? Historically, manufacturers were buying on-premise compute, and they were installing these systems on their shop floors, and they had these control systems, proprietary, all of them, that were essentially one system controlling one machine. And then this, you know, uh, has gotten a little out of hand because you have more than one machine. Uh, but then these machines are expensive, and I'm sort of paraphrasing a little bit here. But essentially, even for fairly small manufacturers, they found themselves, you know, with a bunch of machines that were working more or less. But the control systems that they were operating with 
were were only running one machine, and then they uh, obviously you know had some uh, accounting needs, and you know had these systems of records, which which it's called in manufacturing, where you 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 have to kind of count what you're doing. Uh, but very rapidly, this has become a bit of a disaster in the sense that you need to train all these people to operate these very archaic systems. And then comes along cloud. What does that do? And what is the relevance of all of the things we've been talking about here to modern manufacturing services? And is it possible to move to this cloud environment if you basically have an on-premise system from, from the get-go? Yeah, that's that's fascinating topic. And it's one that I've spent a lot of time thinking about for, just for out of personal kind of interest. But if you think about it, like you, ha- as you said, you had these microcontrollers, like Siemens was a big uh, manufacturer of microcontrollers. Alan Bradley was kind of the 800 pound gorilla back in the day. And they all use proprietary low level kind of what's called ladder logic implementation. So you have to have a, even just to code those things, you have to be a specialized uh, engineer uh, or programmer. Um, and then you have kind of this adoption or modern era of IoT. So a lot of buzzwords around IoT, but it stands for Internet of Things. And what does that mean to manufacturing? Well, all it means is the manufacturing shop floor is connect is now connected to the Internet. Like you have reliable, safe, and fast pipes to the cloud. So you don't have to do all of your processing on the shop floor. Does that mean you should do everything in the cloud? Absolutely not. Because imagine someone cut, comes and you have AT&T digging a tranche and they cut your fiber all of a sudden your whole shop floor is down. That's not going to work for you, right? So you need to be a little bit more sophisticated about where you put your compute. But as an example, let's say you have an advanced manufacturing facility and you want to do some quality assurance. So you have you install a vision system to inspect the parts that you're producing in your manufacturing cycle, right? So you have a camera that takes a picture and is able to kind of discern high quality parts versus parts that might be defective. And usually that's the, the realm of human beings, but you want to apply some artificial intelligence or machine learning to do that. Well, you need a vision model to be trained to understand the difference between good and bad parts. Are you going to train that model on the shop floor? Probably not. That doesn't make much sense, right? You're going to have a, a lot of expensive GPU horsepower sitting there collecting, literally collecting dust on the shop floor and sucking it into its fans. So what you want to do is you want to take the data that you collect off of your assembly line ship it to the cloud and let the cloud do the heavy lifting to produce a machine learning model that can discern the difference between good and bad. And then you ship that model back to your shop floor and that runs semi-connected. Meaning even if you're disconnected from the internet, that model can still run and discern the difference between good and bad parts. Uh, you might not be able to get a new model down until the connection is, is brought back up, but you're not your, your factory is certainly not gonna go down. So this creation of IoT is like really moved the industry forward. Yeah, so that brings us to this new word edge, right? It's like how much compute can you do locally on, you know, on these edge devices versus how much can you do on the cloud? And I guess for for you that the answer is pretty evident because for some of these very very computer intense algorithmic calculations, you don't really have a choice because the edge might become very powerful, but this is the domain of of high power compute and it is a cloud task unless you have a happen to have a supercomputer stacked in a corner, right? I mean, you're not going to run these massive calculations on on the edge, but 
it seems to me that we would be, uh, and and I guess this goes now to my uh, more futuristic question, you know, what is the outlook for this type of computing when it comes to industrial clouds? Because we haven't talked so much uh, about that, but I know you have some opinions about whether people should have one or two clouds and, you know, how what kinds of choices they make. So it seems to me that, you know, just as a base level uh, observation that you, you have to make a flexibility built into your system. If you are a manufacturer, even if you have large computer needs, you have to have both local computing capability that can run fairly independently. And then you have to be very clever about your use of cloud resources because they're expensive and also you know, inefficient if you don't handle them. But that, I guess, gets me, gets me to this question. So there are a lot of choices out there for cloud computing. Should one pick one vendor and put all eggs in one basket, or should you duplicate and sort of like spread your bets out a little bit? And what consequences would those choices have? And then let's get us into a little bit of a discussion about where you see this evolving. Yeah. So as always, the answer depends on where your maturity is as a technology shop and what your goals are. If someone is just starting out in cloud computing and saying, okay, we got a bunch of tasks, let's move them to cloud don't pick two, three vendors because that that's just a complexity disaster that that is waiting to unveil itself. Pick a vendor that you that you like. Go through. There's plenty of criteria to help evaluate, and there's really three or four, maybe five big vendors. But the big ones are Amazon, Microsoft Azure, Google Cloud, Public Cloud, Oracle, maybe IBM, Alibaba. If you're in kind of the fringe, so pick a vendor. But here's what you shouldn't do. You shouldn't go all in on completely proprietary services where there is no opportunity to even swap out that service for something else in case of emergency or in case you really are unhappy with your vendor. And I'll give you a couple of examples. If you choose Amazon and you choose S3, we talked about S3, a simple storage before, do you have optionality? Absolutely. You have so many vendors that will support the S3 protocol, even though it's a proprietary service, you shouldn't be scared at all about using S3. Should be you be scared of using EC2? No, because those are just regular computers. But when you get into something like their proprietary database, they have a database called DynamoDB. It's not an SQL standard database. It's basically a key value store. Now think about Mongo or Redis, like they have these key value capabilities. The API is completely proprietary. And the number of vendors that actually support it is maybe one or two outside of Amazon. Maybe I've seen one vendor that adequately supports DynamoDB. So don't go all in on DynamoDB. You're just locking yourself in forever. And so it's those higher level, what I'll call PaaS, platform as a service offerings that you have to watch out for. Those are the tremendous lock-in levers. And Amazon loves those and all clouds love those because they're basically getting a customer for life. The switching costs become way too high to consider. Well, that's interesting. So switching costs, uh, Leon, they haven't gone uh, gone away and, and, and lock-in hasn't gone away because you would have thought that this was like government, a big government battle that, you know, we, we uh, the government fought it back in the 90s with the uh, document formats when that was kind of the only salient thing you were exchanging, you know, that regular users were exchanging was Word documents. And so there was a big battle around that. And then, you know, those eventually were standardized. But now, of course, every decade, every year, you know, brings in another type of lock-in. And you're saying 
on the cloud side, there still are opportunities for lock-in. So if, we, if you take my question then again on the future outlook, what's going to happen to industrial cloud computing? Is it going to continue to be a, a game of three to five players with some of them being somewhat proprietary or, or all of them kind of pretending that they are very, very open, but at the deeper levels of the stack, they're always going to try to go for proprietary lock-in? Or do you see any kind of opportunity to really move to a completely interoperable world where, you know, essentially, if you like Amazon, then that's fine. But if you don't, you switch to something else and there shouldn't be, you know, really big issues around it. I mean, from like a public service type way of thinking, I would think the latter is preferable. But I, I, it doesn't seem to me like they, it's, that's in the interest of, of big vendors or small vendors for that part, you know, for that matter, like a startup wants to create some initial lock-in, like you said. Yeah, well, if you look at how valuations are created, they're created on the perception of whether you have a moat or you don't have a moat, right? If you don't have a moat and it's easy to step into a, a, a space. So like I think about moats all the time. I think about how do I create, maybe it's not an interoperability mode, but I create data moats as an example. But yeah, there are a couple of interesting trends on the industrial side. So let's talk about those. And they come from vendors that uh, all of the vendors kind of have these offerings now because they're forced to. So industrial players have said, we want to be able to connect with these clouds reliably. So we need what's called the ISO network stack model. So layer two of the network stack, we want to be able to connect with your clouds at layer two, and we want you to provide us an affordable service to do that. So once we connect at layer two, then all of the layer three and four protocols kick in, and we can easily talk to our applications in the cloud on a private line. So that's happened. Every vendor has a private connection that any industrial complex can sign up for. And through a series of vendors, they will get a low latency fast connection to their cloud environment that is highly secure. Great innovation and highly interoperable because you can be connected to one or two or more cloud environments if your enterprise needs that, right? Like you, there's nothing that stops you with routing protocols, which are all open and standard to say, uh, you know, I want to be connected to Google and Amazon at the same time. And then the other interesting innovation that these guys have, have done is they've created these outpost offerings. So what they've said is you like our cloud stack, but you need it local to your environment for many reasons. Maybe it needs to be air gap for security for kind of a top secret implementation, or maybe you just can't afford the latency to go over that wire. Maybe you have other security constraints. So they said, look, no problem. We will ship you one, two, three, four racks of Google Cloud, AWS Cloud, Oracle Cloud. We'll ship that to your facility and we'll run it for you. It'll be in your data center but you will interoperate with it with the control plane, what's called the control plane, which is a set of APIs to run it using our standard API. So you have to change nothing between talking to a public cloud and talking to an outpost or a, a secure private environment. You basically just point yourself to another. So those are two really interesting vendor-led innovations that have led to greater interoperability. However, there's one kind of elephant in the room for interoperability. And no matter what standards get created for data exchange, no matter what standards get created for application interoperability, I believe all vendors, I shouldn't say all, but most vendors are doing a very egregious thing that is detrimental to the development of the next wave of internet innovations. And that's something called egress costs. I've been very passionate about this topic. So, Tron, can I, can I kind of 30-second explanation on what these egress costs are? Yeah, 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 for sure. 
Okay. So basically what the cloud says is that when you send, what, what these cloud vendors say is when you send data to a cloud, we're not going to charge you anything for it. Send as much data as you want. It's all free to go. But when you take data out of the cloud, we're going to charge you. And we're not only going to charge you what we pay plus maybe a small margin, we're going to charge you heavily. So let me just break this down economically. It all, it all depends on the number of bytes you move in each direction. And so AWS today charges approximately $0.09 cents USD in one of our, you know, like say Ashburn or California to move data out of the cloud. $0.09 cents USD per gigabyte doesn't sound like a lot of money. But when you know what the cost structure is under the covers, it's two orders of magnitude more than what you would pay if you ran your own data center. So when I ran my own data center, right, I would pay what's called a dollar a megabit. Rough measure, right? A dollar. They're charging you the equivalent of $30. 30 times more to get access to your data. That's not cost of goods plus some margin. That is gouging. And that prevents that prevents people from interoperating. Because even if you have two data centers, let's say you have your own data center, you're pretty close to a cloud location, so latency isn't a problem. You can't move massive amounts of data from a cost perspective. It's just not unattainable. So what does that mean then? If, if that egress cost is, is there, is this where you would have to, uh, from the get-go, basically have several vendors because you either have to also keep your, some of your data in your own data center and then do a lot of the compute on some uh, other vendor's center? Or do you, is that when you need to plug in some optionality for data that you think you might have to move around because you want to do recompute some calculations or you know that it is data that needs to be mobile and needs to be brought back into the company. Yeah, at scale, this is a huge gotcha for most companies that are dealing with data lakes at scale. This is problematic. And it's even led to some talk of repatriation, which means, hey, this whole thing is just way too expensive. Let's figure out if our running in our own data centers makes sense for the scale that we're currently at. I'll just give you a statistic, like public data, Snapchat spends more than a third of its revenue on cloud infrastructure. Like all the value they add to their customers with their application and their, the, the network they build, third of that money goes to the cloud. And it's definitely a high margin business. So, and a big chunk of that is egress. So where do I think the industry needs to have a breakthrough? It's in this very specific topic. We need to have these vendors come together, and Oracle and Microsoft have kind of done that. And they said, look, for you customers, if you want to run Microsoft applications and Microsoft data centers and Oracle databases, we're not going to charge you a lot of money for this interchange of data. So it's an oligopoly in a lot of ways, because if there's only three or four players, then no one's changing prices. You know, They can keep these egress costs artificially high. And I believe that if there isn't natural competition due to scale, then there is going to be, have to be some type of intervention, like from a government perspective, to figure out how to limit the profitability on that specific line of communication. You know, given what I heard in the congressional hearings over technology last year, it strikes me that this would have to be explained at an enormously basic level before it could get to policymakers. It's like, even to just to explain the basic cloud is a is a challenge. Now you're talking about a very specific segment of the cloud business. But yeah, I, it does sound like it hasn't received an enormous amount of attention yet. Why do you think that is? 
it's where we are in that adoption lifecycle journey, that famous kind of adoption cloud. Like we're just getting to the mainstream adoption of cloud. Like there's still a ton of IT infrastructure that's in data centers, right? Like people have plans, people have might like, but these are multi-decade transformations. And then as the quantity of data grows, this egress problem will quietly bubble to the service. I mean, the problem is even more egregious than that. Like, just to give you an example, Amazon offers these things called availability zones. So within a single cloud, the best practice is not to put all your eggs in one data center, right? Like you want to have some of your application running within, I don't know what, the 25 miles between data centers, right? So there's an official kind of availability zone definition, if you will. They charge money for transferring data within their own cloud. So I have customers that actually say, it's too expensive to have high availability in these cloud environments. We are going to take the risk of going down an availability zone, not to pay the potential bill of hundreds of thousands of dollars a month just to have applications spread across AZs. If you were an alien that came to Earth and, and that was explained to you that this is how people build their applications for these limitations, you would think this is an absolutely crazy race of people. So the technology is understood. What we have to do is understood. Economics is now getting in the way. And some of that economics we can break as like as cast, we're breaking some of that economics and we're helping our customers. But some of it, we have to wait for either competition to create the pressure or governmental pressure to, to be there. Leon, this is, these are fascinating days and it's a really fascinating but complex topic that we've been discussing today. I thank you so much for enlightening us on uh, the continued labors and journeys, uh, you know, in, in cloud computing. Thank you so much, Ron. Really great speaking to you and fantastic questions. All right. Thank you. You have just listened to episode 85 of the Augmented Podcast with host Trun Arne Unheim. The topic was industrial cloud interoperability, and our guest was Leon Cooperman, CTO of Cast AI. In this conversation, we talked about whether industrial cloud interoperability exists and why that matters. My takeaway is that interoperability is a silent enabler of collaboration between systems, which, by the same token, affects collaboration between people and organizations. Its technical complexity often limits the debate about the subject in non-specialist circles, which is a shame. Given the pivotal importance of cloud infrastructure in today's computing environment, the relative progress <clears throat> made on interoperability will determine the course of products, flexibility, security, and productivity. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player, and please rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 17 on Smart Manufacturing for All. Hopefully, you'll find something awesome in these or in other episodes, and if so, do let us know by messaging us. We would love to share your thoughts with other listeners. The Augmented Podcast is created in association with Tulip, the frontline operations platform that connects the people, machines, devices, and systems used in a production or logistics process in a physical location. Tulip is democratizing technology and empowering those closest to operations to solve problems. Tulip is also hiring. You can find Tulip at tulip.co. Please share this show with colleagues who care about where industry and especially where industrial tech is heading. To find us on social media is easy. We are Augmented Pod on LinkedIn and Twitter and Augmented Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Augmented, 
Industrial conversations that matter. See you next time.